In connection with Palm Sunday this morning, congregation, we would direct your attention in the Word of God to the Gospel according to John and to the 12th chapter. We'll be reading John 12, and you can find that in your pew Bible on page 1,238. Now, we'll read from verses 1 through verse 36, but then focus our attention upon verses 12 through 19. So the Word of God comes to us this morning from the Gospel according to John, the twelfth chapter, beginning at verse 1. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus." The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, and that they had done these things to him. Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, "'You see that you are accomplishing nothing.'" Look, the world has gone after him. Now there were certain Greeks also among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. 
Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Thus far this morning, our reading from the Word of God. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, if you observe people, uh, you can tell a lot about a person based upon how they'll enter into a room. Uh, Some people enter into a room uh, with a certain note of arrogance, and you can see that perhaps even in the way that they walk, or certainly in how they speak, speaking about themselves, making great boastful claims. Uh, Other people enter a room uh, rather meekly. You might even say extremely self-conscious. Maybe their eyes dart back and forth between the ground and uh, avoid making eye contact with other people. And then there are those people who enter into a room with a certain note of quiet confidence. Uh, They know who they are, uh, and they know what they are about. It's not arrogance, uh, nor is it uh, uh, self-consciousness. And and you might watch such a person who has this quiet confidence, and you might say that 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 person seems to be about something. That person seems to be uh, on a mission. Well, at an infinitely greater level, that's the way the Lord Jesus Christ enters into Jerusalem for the final time prior to his crucifixion. It's not with an arrogance, nor is it with an extreme self-consciousness. The Lord Jesus Christ enters into Jerusalem with this quiet confidence because he knows that his hour has come. He knows that the hour of his glorification has arrived. In the redemptive history, uh, the hour has come for Jesus Christ to begin that final stage of his humiliation. He knows to some extent what lies ahead. He knows of the betrayal. He knows of the trial and the beatings. He knows of the crucifixion. He knows even uh, that he will in due time be forsaken by his Father. And yet he sets his face, as another gospel writer tells us, he sets his face uh, to walk into Jerusalem to accomplish all that is necessary for us and for our salvation. And we want to look at him, our Lord Jesus Christ, as he makes his entry into Jerusalem on what is now known as Palm Sunday. Uh, We look at the gospel according to John chapter 12, Uh, verses 12 through 19, underneath this theme, the glorious entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And we'll unfold that theme uh, with three points. First of all, the display of Jesus' glory. 
Secondly, the nature of Jesus' glory. And then thirdly, the response to Jesus' glory. So using the biblical narrative, uh, we look at this historic event that actually took place uh, in space and in time when Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem. And we'll notice his glory as he enters into Jerusalem by looking at the display and then the nature and then the response to this glory of Jesus. So first of all, then, the display of Jesus' glory. A glory, uh, it's a word that has this meaning, that the, the dignity of office or the dignity of position, the, the dignity or the solemnity or, or the weight that a person has, especially as that person exercises a certain task or fulfills a, a certain role. It's been said, some of you perhaps even remember when he was in office, uh, that the late President Ronald Reagan would never take off his suit jacket within the Oval Office. Uh, now today, perhaps many would scoff at that, uh, but the reason why the former president never removed his jacket while he was in the Oval Office was because of something of the solemnity of that office, something of the weight of that office. Now, that's just a, a, perhaps an earthly analogy, this is what we mean by, by glory, the solemnity or the dignity or the weightiness of the Lord Jesus Christ, especially as he enters into Jerusalem, uh, not just as some type of passerby, not just as one of the many multitudes uh, of persons who would have come to, to keep this feast, but, but Jesus Christ is someone unique, someone exclusively unique. And this is seen in his glory uh, as displayed by a powerful miracle and a powerful provision. So the glory of Jesus Christ in his person and in his office, and when we think of his office, think of his mediatorial office. He is the mediator. He is the one who has been appointed from all of eternity and is qualified by the Holy Spirit to accomplish salvation, redemption, reconciliation between a holy God and a sinful people. And as he enters into Jerusalem, he does so displaying his glory by way of a powerful miracle that preceded. Uh, the context, as you read John 12, there, there are continual notes of emphasis placed upon the resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, and boys and girls and all of us, just by way of reminder, Lazarus was one of the friends of Jesus. And Lazarus had died. Now, uh, there's all kinds of higher critics and skeptics of the gospel accounts who will say, well, Lazarus didn't really die. Lazarus really died. He was really dead. His soul had separated from his body, and he had been laid in a tomb, and Jesus Christ called him back to life. And in doing that, Jesus Christ showed, displayed, manifested that he has a unique glory. Jesus Christ is able to do that which no one else is able to do. Now, thankfully, doctors can do a lot. And the medical community can do a lot. They can diagnose illnesses. They can treat various diseases. Uh, they can give certain remedies for sicknesses. But no doctor, no expert in the medical community, no mere human being can bring life from death. But Jesus Christ can. And he did. Uh, so we read in John 11, uh, verse 25 and 27, uh, the very powerful 
display there of what Jesus Christ says to Martha. As Martha comes and says, my brother is dead, Jesus said to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And so the glory, the power of Jesus Christ is at least in part this, that he alone has the ability to conquer death. And so you'll notice also in John 12, uh, verse 11, because on account of him, that is Lazarus, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus Christ. So many of the Jews, they they saw the evidence of Jesus' glory. They saw the evidence of Jesus' power. and, And they had a certain faith in Jesus Christ because they had seen something of his glory. The glory, as John tells us elsewhere, the glory as of the only begotten of the Son of God full of grace and truth. Uh, Not only is there this glory displayed in a powerful miracle, uh, but also in a powerful provision, a powerful provision. Jesus Christ displays his glory by powerfully providing for a colt to ride into Jerusalem. Now here we want to borrow from a parallel account of the gospel. Uh, If you cross-reference to Matthew 21, Uh, verse 2. And all of these accounts of the Gospels, of course, are not contradictory. Uh, At times, uh, one sheds light into an area more than another. So in Matthew 21, verse 2, we have a little bit more light shown in this powerful provision uh, of a cult. Uh, And so uh, there we read as follows. Uh, In Matthew 21, verse 2, Jesus instructs his disciples, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Just notice the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ by his knowledge of exact detail. He is the Lord of lords, and he is the King of kings. He has omniscience, and he has omnipotence. He knows exactly. Now, this is not just a guess. This is not just a speculation. This is the words of him who owns the cattle upon a thousand hills. He knows that at this precise time and at this precise place, there will be a colt uh, who in the wonderful providence of God, and if you ever doubt the providence of God, this is one of those things. On that day, the owner of this colt would have just been going about his business. And when he would have tied this colt to its position there, and not really knowing the significance of the detail of that day. But all things are perfectly orchestrated by a sovereign and almighty God in his providence. The Lord Jesus Christ has need of that colt, and so it is sovereignly and providentially placed in this exact position. And the Lord Jesus Christ tells his disciples, go and take it. Now, boys and girls, if you and I would do this, it would be considered stealing. Uh, you, you can't just walk up to someone else's possessions and say, oh, by the way, I need this. I'm going to take it. But Jesus Christ can do that. Why? Because he's Jesus Christ. The Lord has need of this cult. The Lord emphasizes his sovereignty, emphasizes his power, emphasizes his glory. And, and so in these two contextual, you might say, circumstances or details or events 
Jesus Christ is showing something of his glory. In his power over death, by raising Lazarus from the dead, and in his power over all that is in creation, by simply commanding the use of this colt. And as we transition into our second point, I just want to ask this question. Do we see the glory of Jesus Christ? You know, there's much talk about the historical Jesus. And certainly we we emphasize that, yes, Jesus was a historical person. But not only a historical person, a glorious person. A glorious person. Do you see his glory? Does it move you? Does it move us to worship him? Because many of those persons on Palm Sunday, to some extent, they beheld the glory, the only begotten of the Father. And it moved them to worship. Because they saw something of the nature of Jesus' glory, as we'll consider in our second point, uh, the nature of this glory. So in these two ways, he displays his glory, but what exactly is that glory? It is the glory of a saving Messiah, and it is the glory of a peaceful Messiah. It's not just a glory of some miraculous works. It's not just the glory of some sleight of hand saying, wow, look what I can do. I can raise from the dead, and I can exactly predict where an animal will be. No, something much deeper is happening, of course. And here we're helped if we reference back to the prophecy of Zechariah. In Zechariah 9, verse 9, there was this prophetical oracle, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. So it's this encouragement to, to praise, and there's this encouragement for the people of God to worship. But why? Behold, your king is coming. If we ever want to have a reason for why we ought to worship with joy and gladness within our heart, it is this, your king is coming. Now we, from our position, after the accomplishment of the work of redemption, we are able to say our king has come, but we also join still and we say our king is coming. He has come in his first coming and he will come in his final coming. And so we rejoice and we are glad. Zechariah continues, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Jesus' glory is the glory of the Messiah, the glory of the anointed one, the glory uh, of salvation itself, of a promised salvation. And the prophets all throughout the Old Testament, they continually scanned the redemptive horizon knowing that God was going to redeem his people from sin and from death. And, And they looked and they foretold of this coming person, the anointed Messiah. And Zechariah unfolds something, that the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is seen in his work of salvation. It's not just in the fact that Jesus can work miracles. His miracles are always connected to the accomplishment of salvation. And it's not just that Jesus can predict the future. 
but rather it's that He is the Lord over time and over history and over everything, and that as Lord over everything, He is working out the accomplishment of the redemption, the salvation of His people. But why do we need salvation? You know, it'd be an interesting study to poll churchgoers in the Western world. Maybe even an interesting study to poll churchgoers in the United States of America. Maybe even an interesting study to poll churchgoers in Pella, Iowa, and ask, what do you need to be saved from? And see what they answered. But I'll start with myself, and I would encourage you to start with yourself. What do you need to be saved from? Hopefully your answer is, I need to be saved from the wrath of God. The wrath of God against my sin. Is this this not the scriptural truth? We need salvation from the wrath of God on account of our sin. And that salvation is found only in the glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, what is the final week of his earthly life? But the continual step down into the descent of humiliation when the wrath of God will be poured out upon him. I hope and I pray that we understand the nature of the cross and and what actually takes place at the cross. That we understand the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Friday evening, Lord willing, this will be symbolized to us in the Lord's Supper. As the bread is broken and as the wine is poured out, it all testifies to the truth that Isaiah proclaimed in Isaiah 53, that our iniquities are laid upon Jesus Christ. And so it is the glory of a saving Messiah but it's also the glory of a peaceful Messiah. It's interesting that Jesus Christ rides in Jerusalem upon a colt. Uh, Rather lowly, rather humble. It's also interesting that in the book of Revelation, we see the Lord Jesus Christ riding on a white horse. Uh, A white horse uh, was reserved especially for uh, the captain of an army to ride back as they conquered in battle. And usually the the captain of the army, or maybe even the king, uh, would ride upon this white horse and would have all of the captives behind him. And all of the loot of warfare would be behind him. Well, Revelation paints that picture. And certainly Jesus Christ is the triumphant commander. But in this picture, in this picture we see his lowliness his humility, his meekness. And that is going to be on display continually all throughout the final week of his earthly ministry. But just look at this just for a moment in the light of, again, a cross-reference passage, Matthew 11. And I draw this out especially for the encouragement of the spiritually worn and weary person. 
At Matthew 11, beginning at verse 25, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent, and I have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And in this glorious proclamation, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, what do you think Jesus is like? Boys and girls, have you ever been too shy to talk to someone? You know, maybe it's somebody new, maybe it's an adult, and you want to ask a question, but you don't quite dare ask a question. You're too shy. You never, ever have to be too shy to call on Jesus Christ to believe on Jesus Christ. You know, there, there are a lot of important people in the world who that if you know, we met them, they probably wouldn't even pay us a moment's attention. They would just pass us by being far too busy with all of the activities that they have in their life. Jesus Christ is not like that. I believe it's absolutely remarkable that Jesus Christ enters Jerusalem on a colt, humble, lowly. And you can think of his ministry. Did he ever, did he ever show that he was too busy for someone who sincerely called out to him? Children in these times would have not really been important members of society. And remember that time when parents were bringing children to Jesus Christ and the disciples said, he's far too busy, don't have time for that, get him out of his way. And Jesus rebuked the disciples and said, no, let them come unto me. These words are not just for children, but for anyone who hears them. If you ever wonder, would Jesus have time for me? Would Jesus hear me when I call? And maybe you might begin to think, well, I've done a lot of things in my life that I'm embarrassed by. And I don't have any credentials. I don't have a list of spiritual wins, so to speak, that I can show him. Never mind. Come just as you are. Because your king is coming with salvation. And he brings that salvation riding upon a colt. Visibly proclaiming, even as he audibly proclaimed, that he is lowly and gentle. And that all who come to him will indeed find rest. And that ties into what we have in our third point, the response to Jesus' glory. There is a response. The response is twofold, and we bring that out Hopefully you can see in our sub-points there. First of all is the response of humble praise. 
there are certain individuals who recognize to some extent the glory of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And they respond with songs of joy uh, and adoration. Uh, Verse 16 of John 12, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Uh, Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they bore witness. They bore witness, and not only did they bear witness, uh, but also they cried out in verse 13, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And boys and girls, do you know what the word Hosanna means? Hosanna, it basically means, Lord, save. Or, Or maybe save now. It's this request, but also this response, here is the Savior, Lord, save. And I I can't help but wonder how many times in the broader church Palm Sunday has dealt with the words Hosanna without an explanation of what Hosanna actually means. And how many people have sang Hosanna without understanding what it actually means. When we say Hosanna, when these people said Hosanna, they, they saw the glory of Jesus Christ and their response was, Lord, save. Lord, save us. And that needs to be our response also. Of course, it's borrowed, this this Hosanna. It's borrowed from Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26, where there is this cry, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is the cry of faith of a simple faith, of a sincere faith, although an imperfect faith, and perhaps even a weak faith, a a, a faith that had a knowledge, but a faith that was also ignorant. And and that's also for our encouragement. And and we'll read about that when we have the form for preparation in connection with the Lord's Supper. We do not come to the table of the Lord to testify thereby that we have perfect faith. But we have faith. And we come to the table of the Lord and we come to the worship service and we come in all aspects of life and our request, our prayer is, Lord, save. And if if we have that fervent prayer in our heart flowing out of the recognition of the glory of Christ, then indeed blessed are we. For our King is coming. I don't know what your week was like in the week gone past and I don't know what your week will be like in the week that lies ahead. But if you sincerely cry out, Lord, save, it is my wonderful opportunity to tell you this morning, your king is coming. Your king is coming. But notice that there's another response. Sometimes these Pharisees never cease to amaze us. Verse 19, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Jesus Christ always produced two responses, two reactions. And he'll continue to produce those two responses and those two actions all throughout this final week of his earthly ministry. And and perhaps nowhere is this more visibly seen than in his final hours when he is suspended upon the cross. There is this dual reaction to him and his glory. 
as the one thief enters into eternity with cursings against Jesus Christ, and the other thief enters into eternity with the humble, essential prayer, Lord, save. These Pharisees, they proudly reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And why did the Pharisees reject the Lord Jesus Christ? Why does anyone who hears about Jesus Christ reject Jesus Christ? We simply say it this way, it's because of proud self-righteousness. These Pharisees do not see their need of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so they do not recognize the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their pride is stirred because Jesus Christ is drawing followers away from themselves unto himself. And so because of the hardness of their heart, they are unwilling and unable to say, Hosanna, to say, Lord, save. And they will continue in that proud rejection and in that unbelief and in that pride and in that unbelief they will stir up the multitudes later in this week to cry out not hosanna but to cry out crucify him away with the man we want nothing to do with him the sooner you can get rid of him the better And notice the contrast between these two responses. One response is, Hosanna, Lord, save. The other response, get rid of him. And humanity has always generated one of those two responses. You and I, we cannot remain indifferent towards the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. His glory is such his glory is such that it will produce a response. Either our hearts cry out, seeing his glory, Hosanna, my Lord and my Savior. Or our hearts cry out, away with the man. We want nothing to do with him. Now thanks be to God, we are those who profess to cry out, Hosanna, Lord, save. And so then the comforting words is, also again this morning, people of God, rejoice. Rejoice, your king is coming. And we will see him in all of his humility and meekness, but also in all of his glory and majesty. When he rides upon the clouds of eternal victory. Amen. In connection with the planned administration of the Lord's Supper, next Friday, we will now read a portion of the form, the preparatory form, in your booklet there in your pew rack, the forms and prayer booklet. You can find this section beginning on page 37. We'll be using form one. And we note especially that this form provides us with a, a map for self-examination. And so it describes the institution of the supper Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, let us give full attention to the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord as they are delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That we may now celebrate the supper of the Lord to our comfort, it is necessary to examine ourselves fully and further to consider carefully that purpose for which Christ ordained and instituted this sacrament, namely his remembrance. The true examination of ourselves consists of three parts. First, let everyone carefully consider their sins and ungodliness, that they may hate their sins and humble themselves before God, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that he rather than leaving it unpunished, has punished it in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Second, let everyone examine their heart to see whether they also believe the sure promise of God that all their sins are forgiven only because of the passion and death of Jesus Christ, and that the complete righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given to them as their own. Indeed, so completely as if they had personally satisfied for all their sins and fulfilled all righteousness. Third, let everyone carefully examine their own conscience to see if they are fully determined to show true thankfulness to God in every area of life and to walk sincerely before his face, and whether they, with full sincerity, strive to lay aside all enmity, hatred, and envy, and earnestly resolve from this day forward to live with their neighbor in true love and unity. All those then who are of this mind, God will certainly receive in grace and count as worthy partakers of the table of his Son, Jesus Christ. On the contrary, those who do not sincerely believe this testimony in their hearts eat and drink judgment upon themselves. According to the command of Christ and the Apostle Paul, those who know themselves to be engaging in the following sins without repentance have no part in the kingdom of Christ and should therefore abstain from coming to the table of the Lord. Idolaters, those who call upon deceased saints, angels, or any other creature, those who revere images, those who engage in witchcraft, fortune-telling, occult practices, or other forms of superstition, all those who despise God, his word, and his holy sacraments, all blasphemers, those who seek to cause discord, factions, and dissension in the church or in the state, all perjurers, all who are disobedient to their parents and those in lawful authority, all murderers, contentious people, and those who live in hatred and envy against their neighbors, all adulterers, fornicators, drunkards, thieves, the greedy, robbers, gamblers, covetous people, and all who lead offensive lives. All those who continue in such sins shall abstain from the Lord's Supper, so that they feel the weight of God's judgment and condemnation. But this warning is not intended to discourage those believers with contrite hearts, as if no one might come to the Lord's Supper unless they are without sin. We do not come to the Supper to testify about our own perfection and righteousness, but on the contrary, we come seeking life in Jesus Christ apart from ourselves. We come confessing our misery, admitting that we have many shortcomings and do not have perfect faith. 
We also confess that we do not serve God with sufficient zeal, but that we must struggle daily with the weakness of our faith and struggle against the evil lust of our flesh. However, the grace of the Holy Spirit makes us sorry for our shortcomings, gives us the desire to live according to God's commandments, and helps us to fight against unbelief. Therefore, we can rest assured that no sin or weakness that still remains in us against our will can prevent us from being received by God's grace and from being made worthy partakers of this heavenly food and drink. Now let us then pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for displaying the glory of Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, and give us understanding that we might respond with the cry from the sincerity of our heart, Lord, save. Now bless us also in the exercise of self-examination. And may we be brought to renewed expressions of humility, but also of the confidence of faith, that we might then uh, receive the Lord's Supper in the full assurance of our faith, testifying that all of our hope is in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.